0: Neat change in the weather, so, you know, we praise God for the cold, we praise God for the warm, so, um, what a just, I've been so encouraged uh, the past couple of weeks, you know, with Ken sharing last week, and then Jim sharing this week, and um, I just pray you've been encouraged too, and um, I'm just excited to see what what each week God uh, lays on someone's heart to share, just God at work, Um, because God is at work. Um, so i just i'm excited to, to see that and it really encourages my heart um, another thing that i wanted to really um, just bring back to to the forefront was the memory text uh, josh talked about how they read it before their meal each day or each yeah each day at night um, I, I confess i struggled to memorize this each month i even though i know it's important so i mean The word is is alive and active. I mean, it's our food. And I'll be the first one to admit, as a husband and as a father, I struggled to know how to to lead in that. And that was just such an encouragement to me. Um, We've done that this week, and already um, Derek and Ethan both know parts of it. And, I I mean, all we did is read it. It's not like I'm, like, reciting it over and over again throughout the day. And probably verses 1 and 2, I know most of that now. Um, so I just encourage you if you've been trying to figure out how do I implement this into into my my daily life. Maybe you have kids, maybe you don't have kids. Um, I just encourage you just cut this out, put it on your table. I don't know where you put it at, but put it somewhere. Maybe it's you read it each morning, but you know read that each day. And I, I would be willing to bet by the end of the month you'll have most of it memorized. So um, just encourage you to do that. Uh, The verse for this morning is out of Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, and it says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for um, your church. I thank you for this body, and um, God, I thank you just for how you're at work. God, I thank you for the testimony from Ken last week and the testimony from Jim this week, God. And I just, I ask, and I'm just excited to see um, the testimonies in the coming weeks of how you're at work. And I pray, God, that our hearts would be encouraged by that. God, that it wouldn't be just, a oh, there's somebody else with a testimony. Yeah, that was nice, and we move on. But no, God, we would truly um, just savor and, and enjoy and delight in you and how you're at work. God, I thank you for the opportunity that Marcy has with um elementary um, ministry. And I pray, God, that you would just continue to open doors, God, doors for your word to go forth, light to shine forth in a dark place. God, I pray for the um, Bethel ministry, or the, not the Bethel, but the Mitchellville ministry tonight, God. Um, I just pray once again that your word would go forth very clearly. God, that um, people would see you and see your love and be drawn to your love. And those that don't know you would come to know you um, as their Lord and Savior. And those that do know you would would be stirred up, just the billows blowing on the flame um, to burn hotter and brighter for you. And, God, for these um, these prayer requests, God, just for healing and for different things, God, I ask that you would um, just be Lord over all of them, God. Thank you that um, you are at work and I pray God as Reed comes and shares the message God that our minds and our hearts would be attentive and focused on you God. I thank you that your word says um that your word will not return void and we just um we just agree with that truth God that today your word that we've heard will not go void. God it, it will it will um, accomplish what it was sent forth to do and so just fill Reed afresh with your spirit God Fell us afresh with your spirit that we would have hearts and, and minds that would be open to, to you in both spirit and in truth, to worship you and to be um, transformed this day in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Well, this morning we kick off a new series on the church. I believe it's a very important series. I believe it could affect your life powerfully and in a, in a big way, as, as big as anything that we've, that we've talked about here at Real Life Church. In an article in Good Housekeeping magazine back in 2009, Paula Dean said this, I am more spiritual than I am religious I don't go to church, I go to the beach. Nearly everyone today accepts this kind of thinking. Nearly everyone today accepts this idea that spirituality is good, but church is bad, or at least it's not needed. There's a growing trend, a huge trend, even among those who claim to be Christians, who say they believe in Jesus but who dismiss church as unnecessary and unimportant. So, to start out, I think, just because of the thinking that is prevalent in our culture, we have to ask, does church matter? I mean, does it even matter? Um, Why not go to the beach, or go shopping, or stay home, or do anything other than gather with other believers? If church does matter, why does it matter? What is the church anyway? Are we experiencing church as it is to be experienced? Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to delve into those questions and seek to answer them in a very practical and challenging way. By the way, I think Christians should go to the beach and do other fun things. But, If we see what a high calling and great privilege it is to be a part of the church, wild horses could not keep us away. Amen? Amen. So this morning, I want to go to the Bible. I want to go to the Bible and see how the church began and what we can learn from that about the church today and how we do church today. We're going to, I'm going to cover a lot of territory this morning. I'm just going to warn you right up front. But mainly, I, I want us to get a feeling. I want us to uh, get a, p- a picture. I want us to see something. Um, I want us to capture uh, the essence of the church. I don't want to just go down a list and describe it, what it is as an organization, def- technically define it, and so forth. I want us to get a feel for The church, and for what it means to be in the church. The word for church in the Greek language is ekklesia. Literally, it means called out ones or those who are called out. It was used in Greek society to refer to times when people were called out of their homes to a political assembly. So in the Bible, the church is all those who are called out of the world to be God's people through faith in Jesus Christ. We have been called out of our sinful, lost condition into the company of the saints, into the company of God's people. We are the church. The church, the word church is used in in two ways in the Bible. Uh, first, it is used to describe all who believe in Christ, in all times, and in all places. This is the church that is talked about in Ephesians 1.22, which Matt read for us, God appointed Christ as head over all things to the church, or Christ is head of the church. There is only one church in this sense. There is only one church of Jesus Christ, His body, It is not divided by denominations or by differences of any kind. All who belong to Christ belong to his church. Which brings us to our first point, or first lesson. And I'm going to just intersperse lessons as we talk about the church. I'm just going to intersperse lessons. and So we might be going along and just talking about something, reading a a passage, and all of a sudden I'm going to say, this brings us to our next lesson. So first, first lesson. All who are born again through faith in Jesus Christ are members of the church of Jesus Christ. And the only way that you can enter this church or become a member of this church is through being born again, through God's Spirit being born in you. A. W. Tozier said, 100 religious persons do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. We have to be people with new life in order to be a church. No church or denomination can make you a member of this church of Jesus Christ. No church or denomination can make you a member by adding you to their membership role. No one can vote you into this church. Only God the Holy Spirit can put you in into this church as you repent of your sins and turn to Christ and trust Him, believe in Him and trust in Him to save you. Elementary, perhaps, but very, very important and foundational. When you are born again, you come into this church permanently and continuously. In this sense, you are never not in church. I mean, if you're at home, you are in church. If you're at high v, you are in church. You are no longer in the darkness of the world, you are in the church. Always and forever, wherever you are. And for believers in Christ, it is not so much that we go to church, but that we are the church. It is not that we attend church, but that we belong to the church in an unbreakable spiritual union. This church of Jesus Christ will never fail. If you are part of this church, you are part of something that will never fall apart. Hallelujah. Think of that, really. I get a lot of comfort out of that. when I, you know, I, I realize the frailty of human organizations and even the local church, but I I, I get so much encouragement out of being a part of something that is so solid that cannot fail, will never fall apart. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A local gathering of believers may disband. Perhaps some of you have been been a part of uh, of of a local assembly or local church that disbanded or fell apart, but the church of Jesus Christ will always remain, it will always be successful and victorious eternally and forever. You know, some people, some of you will never win anything in your life. You know, you never get a gold medal, you'll never be a part of some huge successful business or corporation, but if you are in the church, you are on the winning team. I mean, the ultimate. Winners are is the Church of Jesus Christ. Even the gates of hell, gates of hell, even Satan himself cannot defeat you if you're in the Church. And I, you know, we sing a song uh, that Luke wrote, I think, "We Win" or something like that. You know, just an, really an awesome theme to remember as the people of God. The most awesome privilege in your life is to be in the church of Jesus Christ. You have not come to just a human organization. Hebrews 12.22 puts it this way, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Think about that. You I know, mean, somebody asks you what church you go to, you can say, I go to the church of the living God, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Fantastic. In his introduction to the book of, of Acts, J.B. Phillips wrote, These early Christians were on fire with the conviction that they had become, through Christ, literally sons and daughters of God. They were pioneers of a a new humanity, founders of a new kingdom. In other words, they were ecstatic about the privilege of being in the assembly of God's people, the church. They were on fire with this truth. This is the one church of Jesus Christ that includes all believers everywhere. But God has willed That this one church be seen and be heard in the world. God has willed that this one church be seen and heard in the form of churches, local churches, in various places and at different times, like Ankeny, Iowa, in 2014. God has appointed smaller churches. And I don't necessarily mean it's only small, but smaller than this massive church that includes all believers uh, everywhere. God has appointed smaller local gatherings of believers to be the continual expression of His church, the body of Christ, in this world. So, the Bible can say Christ is the head of the church, meaning He is the head of the one church, His church of all believers. But the Bible can also refer, as it does, to the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria, or the church at Jerusalem, or the church that meets at the house of Priscilla and Aquila. Not only are all believers together called the church, all local gatherings of believers are also called the church. For example, in Romans sixteen sixteen, Paul says, "All the churches of Christ salute you." In the book of Revelation, which many of you are familiar with, the letters to the churches, Jesus Christ dictated these letters to individual churches, to the church at Ephesus, Pergamum, Philadelphia, Smyrna, etc. In Acts twenty, Paul called to himself, uh, called the elders of the church from Ephesus uh, to to come and meet him. In the book of Corinthians, Paul begins by addressing the church of God at Corinth. So we see that when we, when we talk about the church, the body of Christ, it is not only just this massive uh, company of all believers, but the Bible, in, in fact, more, more commonly uses the, ter- the term church to refer to individual local gatherings of believers. Which brings us to lesson number two. All who are born into the one body, the one church of Jesus Christ, are also to gather with other believers in what we call a local church. In other words, they did not just become part of a spiritual body of people. They became part of a local church. When Peter preached the the first sermon in Acts chapter 2, about 3,000, it says, believed at Jerusalem. And it goes on to say later in that chapter, they they devoted themselves to one another, to meeting together. They assembled. They met uh, at the temple. They met for teaching. They met for prayer, for fellowship, for breaking of bread. And those who believed at Jerusalem became the church at Jerusalem. And there's many references throughout the book of Acts to the church at Jerusalem. It's talking about that specific assembly or gathering of believers. Those who believed that Antioch became the church at Antioch, and so on. Let me say this very clearly, but yet with much, with much love and kindness. It is profoundly inconsistent to claim to be in the church, the body of Christ, but to have little or nothing to do with a local gathering of believers. This is like saying... I am married, but I don't live with my wife. Living with your wife is a manifestation of the truth that you are married. Going to, attending, being involved, and being active in a local church is a manifestation that you are a member of the body of Christ. And that is why the book of Hebrews issues a warning to those who give up meeting together, or those who neglect assembling together. And as Josh pointed out last week, but I'm going to repeat it, and we'll probably talk about this more later as we cover uh, specific areas of the church, but most of the commands in the New Testament were written to believers in churches and with the explicit understanding that they would function as a living body regularly meeting together and building up each other. For example, uh, teach and admonish one another. You know how can you do that if you if you never assemble with other Christians? How can you you know teach and admonish one another, sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? I mean, we're supposed to do that. It's a command. You know how can we do that if we uh, if we isolate and don't and, and don't regularly get together? Bear one another's burdens, encourage one another day after day, pray for one another, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, stimulate one another, greet one another. Uh, we, you have to actually be in other people's physical presence to do most all of those things on a regular basis. Together, we are the church. You have something I don't have, I have something you don't have, and together, we make up the body of Christ, the church, the local expression of the body of Christ. All right, let's go back to the book of Acts. After the church began at Jerusalem, more and more churches were formed as the gospel spread to different cities and places. Acts chapter 8, verse 4 says that those who were scattered by persecution preached the word wherever they went. The apostles uh, traveled extensively and preached the, the good news about Jesus in different cities and where, where any believed, no matter how few, they started a church. And initially these assemblies were, were very small, small groups of people gathered in the name of Jesus, which reminds me so much of what Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. And I think this points out several important truths about the church. You can't have church by yourself. You know, a lot of people say, I'm say, okay, like Paula Dean. I'm going to go to the beach and have church by myself. You, you, you have to have at least two or three to gather to have church. If two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. But a church, a church has to have at least two or three gathered, but a church can be very small. I was reading this week, I am struck how at Philippi, it, apparently if you read in the story of Acts, it looks like Lydia and her household were the only ones who responded to Paul's message when he preached it there by the river at Philippi. And then, remember, Paul was thrown in prison. And then the Philippian jailer and his family believed. And it says after Paul and Silas were released from prison, it says that they met with all the brothers at Lydia's house. I love that. They they got out of prison, and they got all the brothers together, and they met at Lydia's house. I don't know how big her house was, but the church could all fit in it at that point. That was the beginning of the church at, at Philippi. The church is where two or three are gathered in my name. The most central thing about our gathering as a church, and no matter what we talk about for church, and we could talk about a lot of things. we can talk about baptism, Lord's Supper, we can talk about elders, deacons, you know church activities, you know all our church responsibilities and everything. But if we don't keep this in mind, we have missed everything. <laughs> The most central thing about our gathering is that we gather in the name of Jesus, or we gather around the person of Jesus. We gather around the name of Jesus. And Jesus said, if you do that, there I am in your midst. There I will be in your midst. The very essence of a church is that we are here to meet with Jesus, to gather around Jesus, to remember Jesus, to love him, to worship him, to be taught about Him, and to be taught from Him. The church is all about Jesus. The early church had simple activities that they had engaged in that kept their focus on Jesus and built up in the truth about Jesus. Acts 2.42 tells us that the church at Jerusalem uh, prayed together. And part of their prayer was, was obviously connecting with Jesus, talking to Jesus. They prayed together. They fellowshiped. They fellowshiped around Jesus, talking about him and what he had done for them and how their sins were forgiven. They broke bread together. They, they, uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, they did together, reminding them of, about Jesus. It was all centered around him. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which also was about Jesus. In other words, there were simple core activities that they did, that, that, that they understood were essential. Uh, they, they had a very clear focus on what was essential for them to be doing as a church and to build each other up. There was a, there was a simplicity, a purity uh, in the early church that was not lost in, um, in misplaced priorities that we need to recover today. Which brings us to lesson three. We must always remember the essential activities and purpose of the church. Now, I, I put this in here, and, and I'm, I'm going to kind of just share from my heart here uh, for a little bit here on this point. I, I was, I was going to maybe entitle this message, uh, Breaking Down Idols and Misconceptions About the Church, because I think... Sometimes before we, before we learn something, we have to unlearn something. And boy, when it comes to the church, in our culture, I'm not accusing any, anyone here necessarily of this, but in, in our culture at least, we, we've got a lot to unlearn before we can really see what the church is. For example, um, I was involved with uh, a startup of Des Moines Fellowship Church in 1976, And we met in a home, actually we met in an apartment for the first uh, several months. Um, And here were some of the comments I heard from people at that time. You don't have a choir? How can you have a church without a choir? You don't have a Sunday school, a seminary degree, a building, an organ? How can you call that a church? And my favorite one, I never thought Reed and Paul would be involved in a church that did not have pews. Now, you know, a lot has changed since 1976, and some of the church idols that people had in 1976 are not the same misconceptions or idols that people have today. But here are some that I think people have today. To many people today, a real church is a megachurch. A real church is a a megachurch with big buildings, thousands of people, a big-name personality as pastor, uh, a slick professional presentation. Everything is made for TV and could go on TV at any moment. Uh, And churches that don't fit this category are considered either failures or they just have not yet arrived at this ideal of what the church is. In other words, there's megachurches and wannabe churches. Mega churches, that, that, that's, that's it. Well, there's certainly nothing wrong with being big. And, you know, praise God for churches that minister to lots of people. There's some good ones, really good ones. But, is this the essential? Is this the prototype for all? Is this the church as it was in the New Testament? Not at all. Many of the churches met in people's homes, as we've already mentioned. And throughout the first Three centuries until the time of Constantine, when the church was under much persecution, it, it might be that nearly all the churches met. They, they were in hiding, in a sense. They, they met in small places, in unnoticed places, certainly not in big church buildings. They were meeting mostly in homes. And that's why, you know, Paul when Paul wrote to Philemon, the book of Philemon, he said, this greeting is for you and for the church that meets in your home. In the book of Colossians, he said to greet Nympha and the church that meets in her house. I'm reading a book uh, about Bob Fu in China. And he said, in China today, the church is growing, growing through churches that meet in homes. For some people, church is a smorgasbord of programs. It's a place where you go where there's just a massive amount of programs for every interest, every possible interest, every every age group, everything that anybody would like to do, there's a program for you. And unless there's a, a sophisticated and organized activities for every age group, every interest group, then it is not a church. Again, nothing wrong with lots of programs for lots of people, but is this the measure of the church? Is this the essence of the church? Is this essential for church? A church. For some people, church is all about the building, the stained glass, the big cross, the high ceilings, the altar, the architectural atmosphere is everything. I have actually heard people walk into a building, or what they call a church building, and say, I don't think I could worship in a building like this, just because of that misconception about church. For some people church is all about the pastor. The pastor is the church. His eloquence, his talent, his voice, his gestures, he is the center. But you look at the church at Corinth uh, into the assembly meeting, and it's evident that multiple people uh, were speaking. It certainly wasn't centered around uh, one man only. And where when Paul and Barnabas were set up for the church, even though the Apostle Paul was there, it says that there were many prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. And we'll look at later how all churches had multiple leaders or multiple elders. Well, some of you here, you know, you've you've got it. And you say, Hey, none of those I I've never fell for any of those. And you might be thinking, you know, I just you know, I'm glad I don't have any of those silly misconceptions. But Let's consider just for a moment. What if you came to church some morning and we didn't have a sound system? What if we lost our lease all of a sudden and had to meet in homes for a period of time? What if there was no formally prepared message each Sunday? I mean, could you handle that? You know, persecution could come and the church would have to give up a lot of the non-essentials so I, I just think, for when we think about the church, it is so important to, uh, to separate what's essential, what's absolute, what really is the church, and maybe what are some things that we have freedom to do, and can do, and might be, even be blessings to do, but we have to be able to let go of these things, but never let go of these things. You with me? Lesson number four. The presence and gifts of the Spirit are to be central in each church. We should never forget that the church began by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's the foundation, the beginning. We should never forget that. The New Testament church was designed to allow for the freedom of the Holy Spirit. Paul... In 1 Corinthians calls this entire age that we live in, in, of the church, he calls it the administration or the ministry of the Spirit. That's the chief characteristic of this time in which we live in the church. It is the ministry of the Spirit. The church at Ephesus is commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, the church at Corinth is told that each one is given gifts from the Holy Spirit for the common good. The church at Thessalonica is told, do not put out the fire of the Spirit. and Do not despise the gifts and working of the Spirit through prophetic utterances. There was enough structure in the church that things were to be done decently and in an order, but not so much structure as to hinder the expressions of the Spirit. I love it that Jim felt free to come up here and, share, and moved by the Holy Spirit to share a testimony. In 1 Corinthians 14, we get a... Uh, a glimpse of at least one type of church meeting where everyone, it says, had a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, a prophecy. The, the idea is that several people were speaking, uh, singing, or at least suggesting or starting hymns. Uh, very, as a, some of the meetings in the early church at least were very free-flowing. There's certainly a basis for teaching meetings, um, but there's also a basis for these very free-flowing one-another type meetings. And I just the reason I put this point in here on this introduction to the church is that if we cannot even come into the church without being born of the Spirit, how can we have church without the Holy Spirit? So we need to not, not only, obviously, exalt the name of Jesus as central, but we need to remember how important and essential the Holy Spirit is to the church. All right, back to the book of Acts. Soon after these first, first churches began, Paul... And the apostles returned to, some, to the, the same areas where they had gone and preached the gospel and where p- people had believed and gathered in these local they, assemblies. Uh, they went back and appointed elders in, for them, for each church. Acts 14, 21 through 23. Very important passage. It says, Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. see I hope you get that picture the, 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 some people have believed at these different at all these different locations Paul felt it very important to go back to each one of these locations and appoint elders for them in every church. They certainly encouraged them, and they strengthened them, but part of the process of establishing that church was to go back and appoint elders, and it says in each church, and they did this with prayer and fasting, and they committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. <clears throat> Paul made it clear in the letter to, to Titus that something was lacking in these places until elders were appointed. He said to Titus, I left you in Crete in order that you might straighten out what was unfinished and appoint elders in every town. In other words, he viewed that there was something sort of unfinished about these churches until uh, shepherds, elders, were uh, appointed in every one. Although the New Testament church had a simplicity about it, as I already talked about, it was not without structure, it was not without leadership. These men were called elders, overseers, or shepherds. All of these descriptive titles were used interchangeably. And people get really confused about this when they try to uh, say that each one of these were, 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 are different people or different levels of authority in the church and we've got some sort of hierarchy. Now, in the New Testament, I, uh, it's very clear that elders, overseers, uh, or shepherds were, were used interchangeably. For example... First Peter five, a good, very good passage on this. Peter said, "To the elders among you, all right, to the elders, to the elders of the churches among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. I mean, could it be clearer than that that he's talking to the same, you know, the same people? The elders are to shepherd; they're the shepherds. Be shepherds of God's flock." Among whom you serve as overseers, that pretty much should end that argument in hebrews thirteen seventeen or thirteen seven The leaders are simply called leaders. you know obey your leaders, those who watch over your soul uh, they 're simply called leaders who watch over your souls. Now the amazing thing and just and just what can I think uh, really uh, surprises the amazing thing that these men were appointed from among those gathered in the churches they, they were not professionals brought in from Jerusalem. Uh, they were not people that were professionally trained outside and brought in. Uh, John Piper wrote, has written a book called "Brothers, We Are Not Professionals." It's—it's a, it's a addressed—it's for pastors, elders, uh, because sometimes people get get the mistaken idea uh, that shepherds of churches are this professional. Class of people, and certainly you know some of them are, are well educated and so forth. God praise God for that, but it is not an, not not the essential requirements that the New Testament gives. more than one was appointed in every church there was it, the church was never a one man show. Uh, we do not read of a church in the New Testament that ha, that only had one overseer. These men were not not put in positions of great power, but they were to serve. They were to be examples, Peter said, not to lord it over the flock. In other words, I've heard it described like this. It's, it's a leadership, but it's a soft leadership. It's not a harsh, domineering leadership that we, uh, as elders, are to give in the church. Elders were to be sh- uh, these men were to be shepherds, not kings or presidents. They were to be men of integrity and character, not necessarily the most powerful or, or popular or according to the flesh. They were required to be able to teach the Word of God, but they were not required to be comedians, entertainers, orators, or fantastic storytellers. Maybe I'm the only one that appreciates that. (laughs) At this point, so at this point, through what we've covered, we can see that the church was a gathering of believers who had been born again. They're they're people who've been born again, who experienced the life of the Spirit. They were devoted together. They met together. And they were under a team of spiritual leaders. Which brings us to lesson number five. Every Christian needs a New Testament type pastor, elder, shepherd in their life. And it's not not something I'm trying to say because I, I... want people to you know, think somehow differently about me or be committed to me. It has nothing to do with that. It's just that it's there. It's there in the Bible. People are to be under uh, a, a shepherd, a pastor, an elder. Not to intrude into every one of your little personal decisions or to overly dominate you, but to prove to be an example to you, to know how you're doing spiritually, and to watch over your soul, and to teach you, which is one of the, pri- the primary responsibilities of, a, of an elder. All right, lesson number six, and this is the last one. Uh, each church is his church. When I say his, I mean Jesus. Each church belongs to Jesus Christ. The church as we see it in the Bible had no massive authoritative bureaucracy even the apostles did not some start some massive, uh, complex organization. They went back where they were believers, believed. They appointed elders, and then they commended each local church to the Lord. Each church had a direct relationship with Jesus Christ. We see this in Revelation. Jesus Christ wrote a letter to each individual church, not to some massive formal association of churches. The application for this is that real-life church belongs to Jesus Christ directly. We are accountable to Jesus just like those churches in Revelation. He sees us. He knows us. Uh, I, I love the letter. I think it's to the church at Pergamum. He says, I know where you live. You know, Jesus' knowledge about the church is that Intimate that personable, that precise. Jesus knows how we, right here, those of us in this room, how we here at Real Life Church, Jesus knows how we behave, what we believe, what we tolerate, and the conditions of our hearts, just as he did in those churches that he wrote to in Revelation. He has encouragements for us and concerns for us just like he did for those churches, we are his. In Acts twenty twenty eight, another verse that communicates this very well, Paul uh, calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus, and he, and, he, and he tells the elders of the church, the local church at Ephesus, he says, "Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood." In other words, what I hear Paul saying there is, "Elders, you guys." shepherd your local church in the city of Ephesus, which Jesus bought with his own blood. In other words, never forget whose church it is. We are a body of people whom Jesus bought and paid for. All that we do as a church should demonstrate our devotion to him, our love for him, and our submission to him. Ephesians 5 teaches that the church is in a relationship with Jesus like a marriage, or like the marriage relationship. And it says that like, like the, it, it compares like the glad submission of a wife would give to a loving husband, so we as a church are to love Jesus and to submit to him in everything. I mean, that's, that's, that's the whole thing. We are in We are in, as a church, we are a group of people, a body of people, a company of people who are in relationship with Jesus, much like a marriage relationship, only we are the wife, we are the bride, and we are to submit to him in everything. We are to be absolutely devoted to him as our Lord and Savior in this love relationship between Christ and the church. Christ loves you. Christ loves real-life church. Jesus loves this body of people. He gave himself. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And if we don't keep that in mind, uh, nothing else that we learn about the church will really matter. All right, that's it for this morning. This is our introduction. Uh, a lot of these things we'll touch on uh, more as we go through this series. Um, this, I just wanted to give you a, uh, a, a, a sense, a feel, I, I, I hope a sense of excitement uh, for what the church was in, in, in the New Testament and what it can be uh, for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, this morning. Uh, for the church. And thank you so much that you shed your own blood to purchase us and bring us into the church. God, I ask that, uh, like the New Testament church, we would be on fire with the conviction that we are sons, literally sons and daughters of God, brought into this new company of people of saints called the church, that we have been called out of darkness into your glorious light, that we've been called out of the world into your church, out of the domain of darkness and of Satan, into the kingdom of your beloved Son. I pray that you would ignite our hearts with these truths and cause us to uh, truly uh, find a sense of of, uh, great joy in this. And I pray that you bless this series as we go on now in the next several Sundays. May this just be, be just the beginning. Open up our hearts. Lord, and I say, I have so much to learn about the church. And we have so much to learn about the church. God, teach us. Be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.